Well, happy December. Um, just want to give you guys a few quick announcements before we roll into the text this morning. I also was asked if there are seats kind of like, I don't know, anywhere near you, if you could squeeze in a little bit. There's still people uh, coming in, so uh, if there's not a seat, you can just sit where you are, or you can be really godly, and you can get up and give it to somebody else. Uh, just kidding. Don't do that. We're going to put other seats out, all right? But just move in if you can. Um, two things coming up. Christmas Eve service. want to make sure everybody is aware we're having a 4 and a 545 this year uh, on Christmas Eve. Uh, I'm not quite understand, not sure why I, I, this can't uh, still be understood, but, but Christmas Eve is Christmas Eve. I, I, you're still asking me what date we're doing it? It's on Christmas Eve. It's, it's December 24th is when Christmas Eve is. So that's when our service will be. Uh, I know there are other people maybe having like Eve, 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 Eves or something. Uh, but we're having a Christmas Eve service on Christmas Eve on December 24th. So I give a prize to the next person who emails me and asks me the date. You will get a date with me in my office. And I will map out the 365 calendar days of the year and show you Christmas Eve. Okay. Um, so that's where we're at with that. The kids will be um, just kind of doing their amazing program at four o'clock. And uh, if you have a kid in Bergen Kids and haven't yet, let them know that your kid will be participating. That's like really important. So just make sure you let them know that. Also, our equip classes are kicking off in January. You know, we do semesters. So we have groups for a semester. And then we have equip classes. Our equip classes are uh, January and February. We're going to be teaching uh, the book of Revelation and a personal evangelism class, kind of coinciding with our walk through First Peter that we're taking a pause on for Advent. Um, so I pray that's encouraging to you. You can register online for that. And then um, just last thing I want to encourage you in, Michelle's going to come up, our Burden Kids director. I don't know if you know Michelle, but if you don't know Michelle, you need to know Michelle, even if you don't have children. She has been absolutely crushing it in the Bergen Kids department. And um, she has. And yes, first service, she grabbed a mic and I said, what are you doing? I thought I was the only one talking, but I learned I'm not. So uh, she has some things she wants to say too. But a lot of you guys don't realize, uh, yes, uh, well, and a few things I know to do in life. Make grilled cheese and turn on mic, all right? So here's, stay over here. I'm not, we're, we're on staff together, so we got to look like we like each other, okay? So, so here's the deal. She does so many things throughout the week, and so many things happen. When she came on a little over a year ago on staff, uh, we had about 30 kids. We now have about 90, and, and that's, that's a significant increase. If you're a mathematician, you know that that's a dramatic increase in children who are all back in those wonderful classrooms learning about Jesus. And so uh, that just doesn't magically take shape. She has a number of people on a resource team that come in during the week, during the day, and help put together all the materials necessary for all those kids to learn. It frees the teachers up from having to spend time preparing lessons so that the teachers can give themselves to getting ready to teach the kids. And the irony is that apparently we have people in the church that love to just go to Florida in the winter. So I get it. I wish I could come with you. I don't know why you haven't invited me, but, but they head south like the birds for the winter. Uh, and so she's losing her resource team January to March. Um, so if you're a Christian who loves to stay in the state God has you uh, for the whole winter, uh, I would just encourage you to just join that team. If you've got daytime available, if you breathe, you can be on this team. You don't need like a special gifting in scissors or coloring. You just need to be able to breathe and smile and serve, okay? Um, and is there anything else you would love to add to that? You did good this time. Right? <laughs> I learned from the first service what else is um, necessary. But uh, 
if you go to the info desk, there's uh, beautiful cards that our creative director made um, that look like this. And you can just check resource team, and we would love to have you. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to, like, make them do anything else? I mean, you got the mic, so. <laughs> um, it's great for people who love to be behind the scenes um, serving and are really yeah. just passionate about um, sharing the gospel and letting the gospel go forth. So yeah. it's a great way to serve the Lord here at CAB. Awesome. Thank you, Michelle, so much. So listen, I, uh, well, that's great. I mean, you can clap, but if you don't go serve, that doesn't mean nothing. So, so let's, let's clap and let's go serve, all right? And let's, uh, let's go, you can do that at the info desk or see her, and I can't wait to see that full today uh, before you guys leave. It's going to be great. We've got a full resource team. And if you sign up for the resource team, I did not say this at the 915. I am literally pulling an audible. I will bring you your choice of coffee and donut on Wednesday. Cool? Deal? I will do that. All right? I don't know. Some of you are like, I don't even like donuts or coffee. That stinks. All right. Um, I'm going to pray to realign us since I'm, I'm a little bit off and, uh, and just kind of get us ready for Isaiah. We're in Advent this year. Let's pray and ask God to do something wonderful in our hearts with our time together. Uh, Jesus, thank you that we get to sit under um, the teaching of your word. God, thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that you speak to us through creation, through conscience, through Christ, and through your written revelation. Uh, God, thank you that we do not have to wander about in blind speculation, but you've given us divine revelation to know what you're like, know what you've said. Now, we pray your Holy Spirit would meet us in ways that are meaningful and helpful. I pray that you would illuminate hearts and minds to discern what can only be spiritually discerned, to understand what can only be understood um, with the help of your sovereign hand. Uh, we pray that you'd encourage those that need encouragement, comfort those who need comfort, instruct and guide those who need specific instruction and guidance. And uh, God, above all else, will we see Jesus as glorious and wonderful and beautiful because we were together than if we were not this morning. Uh, use us for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I want to welcome you if you're new or visiting. I know we have a lot of uh, new people that regularly come in and, uh, and, and greet and, and kind of land here. And we want you just to always know what you're seeing and what you're witnessing. What you're witnessing is very simply just a worship service. And um, a worship service is a way that by which we worship, give glory to Jesus because we believe Jesus was God, that he did come and he did live the obedient life we couldn't live in our place. And he did die a death for us in our place for our sins. And he did rise from death, and he did ascend, and he does gift his Holy Spirit to all who would gladly trust in his person and work alone for forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. And so we worship him by doing a number of things in the service. We sing songs. That's why we sing the songs that we sing as an act of worship. We don't just mindlessly want to say things. We want to say things that matter based upon what Christ has done for us. We also worship him by sitting under the teaching of God's word. That's this portion of the service where uh, we learn what God has said, not what we want to say, and we learn that Jesus is always the center to everything in the scriptures. We also uh, worship Jesus by observing the Lord's Supper or communion each week. Uh, that's a way we worship him, not by it adding any righteousness to you. It does not merit forgiveness. It does not increase favor with God. It simply is a meal that nourishes us when we take it by reminding us of the saving benefits that we have in the person and work of Jesus. And uh, finally, we worship him by being generous because God was supremely generous in giving us Jesus, and we give on the 
silver boxes on the back wall. And I always say, if you're not a regular attender or member, please do not feel compelled in any way, shape, or form to give. We are so grateful you're here. Uh, we pray that you would grow to know and love Jesus. Um, where we're at is in Advent right now. And normally what we do is we love to take books of the Bible and go through them verse by verse, line by line, chapter by chapter, so you would see the whole counsel of what God has said. So we learn how to interpret the Bible and study the Bible for yourself. Um, and so what we're doing right now, just for December every year, is we press pause in whatever book we're in uh, for the month of December to talk about Advent. And Advent is very simply the arrival of something. And so uh, we recall the arrival of Jesus Christ Christmas morning, and we anticipate his second Advent, his second arrival in the second coming. And, and what our hope is every year is that basically us remembering and looking more deeply and profoundly at what the Advent of Jesus at Christmas means for us that it would actually um, redeem a lot of our unmet expectations. Um, if we're honest, man, this, this time of year is just filled with expectation and anticipation. Um, a lot of us feel like, man, this is the year that everything's gonna just come together and fall in line. This is a year where the whole family's finally gonna get along. This is where I'm gonna get that relationship. This is when I'm gonna get that promotion. This is the time of year when everything's gonna just, all the lines are gonna fall in pleasant places and I'll be good. It's kind of like we're constantly haunted by that there are always better days ahead. Right, And so because we live in that way in our hearts, man, what Christ does in his person and work, but namely at Christmas, is he redeems all of our unmet expectations. And hear me, if, if you have any bit of bitterness or anger or resentment, it is solely from an unmet expectation. Um, that was one of the wisest things a uh, one of my professors at seminary ever said was every expectation that you have that rises up in your heart is birthed, or every bit of anger and bitterness you have is birthed from an unmet expectation, and Christ finally and fully and forever appeases that and mends that and heals that so now we can walk in gladness. And so that's the, the good message of Christmas, that the anticipation of him is namely what we should be anticipating and setting our minds and thoughts on. And that's where we should root ourselves. And so um, we're looking at Isaiah 9, 6, which is where Isaiah prophesies this coming Messiah. And he lists out the names by which are given to this coming king. And um, I want to remind you in week one where we started was... We looked back at Luke and him being a wonderful counselor and the government being put on his shoulders, how um, Luke says out of the gate in chapter one that this coming Messiah is going to be someone who's going to bring about a sunrise since there's been darkness. He says a sunrise is going to visit you on high. He's talking about Jesus Christ. And the reason he's talking about that is because it has been just dark for Israel. You have to understand when you read Isaiah's prophecy, it's just been oppressive, it's been difficult, it's been discouraging, it's been dismantling, it's been disorienting. They have not been experiencing what they thought God had promised their father Abraham. So you can go all the way back to Abraham where God says to him, through your children's children is going to come a nation, everyone's going to see that I'm awesome because I'm God of your nation, but from your nation, from your line is going to come this promised redeemer to crush the head of Satan, right, from Genesis 3. But what you learn is after that promise to Abraham, it's just dark for Israel. I mean, they get 400 years in slavery. They got 40 years wandering about in the wilderness. You've got captivity. Then you've got splits with northern kingdoms and southern kingdoms and back into captivity. And then you have the Greeks oppressing them and then the Romans oppressing them. And all the while, there's this promise that sunrise is coming. 
that the darkness is going to be lifted. Then you've got Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, who before God goes silent for 400 years, he prophesies in his book that the son of righteousness will come with healing in his beams. That's Jesus. So then God's quiet for 400 years. Where is he? Where's this promise to Abraham? Where's all that's sung about in the Psalms? Where's all that's heralded by the prophets? Where's all that was shown in the law that we couldn't keep? Where's the blood to be spilled that was shown in the sacrificial system? Where is all that? And this homeless man eating locusts, John the Baptist shows up and he says, and he points to Jesus and says, there he is, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, makes straight his paths. He's here. Forgiveness is here. Sunlight is here. The darkness is finally going to be lifted through the Redeemer that was promised. Yet all the while, prophets had been heralding that this one would come. And so namely Isaiah, right, 700 years prior to Christmas morning, announces what he will be like. And so we just very simply wanted to take each week to look at his names. And what does that mean for us? And so Isaiah 9, 6 Here's what Isaiah says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, So Isaiah prophesies that this coming king who will crush the head of Satan, bless all the families of the earth, who will come and basically redeem all that's broken, um, he's going to put the government on his shoulders. Remember we said that the people hearing this, we're not hearing this like you're hearing it maybe as a Christmas carol. Like they're hearing it as really crazy news because it's been so dark for them. And they see here Isaiah is saying he's going to put it on himself. He's going to put literally the government on himself. He's going to fix what's broken himself. He's going to enter into this darkness and pull it back and shine his marvelous light. That's what the Redeemer, Savior, King is going to do. He's going to put an end to sin, to oppression, to injustice, and solve it himself. God in the flesh will do this, and he's going to do it at the darkest spot in human history around Israel and use it as his ground zero. Spectacular. Amazing. But the question then is, and the recurring question we've asked the last two weeks is, well then, how is he going to do this? What's he going to be like? And we looked at the first week, he's going to be a wonderful counselor. And last week, he's going to be a mighty God. And this week, he's going to be an everlasting father. He's going to be an everlasting father. Now the question naturally is, well, um, why does that matter? (laughs) Like, why does it matter that the coming king, the promised one, uh, around a people that are suffering, feel injustice, are oppressed, disoriented, maybe that's where you find yourself today, uh, why is it good news that he's going to be an everlasting father? Um, And so that's what I just want to chat about for a couple minutes this morning. Um, The first thing I want to make sure you understand in this is I always want to try to get us on the right path and take us off wrong paths. Uh, So in some ways, I always want to kind of like unteach you and reteach you. Uh, So one thing you have to understand is there's something called oneness theology that's grabbed from this text, and specific this name given to the promised Messiah, um, that is incorrect and unbiblical. And what they'll say is, well, Isaiah is attributing the name everlasting father to the promised Messiah, who is Jesus, but God is father, so God is one person, not three persons as one God. So they'll deny the Trinity. 
They'll say this text shows you that, uh, see, he's saying Jesus is everlasting father, and if God is father, then they're the same person. Um, We believe in one God, three distinct persons, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so what Isaiah is not doing is he is not teaching us that Jesus is the same person as God the Father. Um, He's not not doing that. Um, When Isaiah says that Jesus will be everlasting Father, he's not saying Jesus is the everlasting Father, as in God the Father, but that Jesus has all the attributes of God, including his eternality and his father-like characteristics. He's giving you this this prophetic language and the manner by which the Messiah is going to come and how he's going to treat you. And so that's what Isaiah is getting at. And we're going to talk about more of that in a moment. But for now, why does Jesus being the everlasting Father matter? Now, the reason that question's amazing is because I was studying this even back in November when we decided this is the text we're going to use. Um, I think for me, out of all the names attributed to Jesus in Isaiah 9, this one intrigues me the most because I feel like it's the one I understand the least. Like, like I got wonderful counselor. Like, I get that his scepter is bigger than mine that he's going to counsel me, that he's going to instruct me. I, I get mighty God. I, I feel like I, I love just reading about the bigness of God in the Bible. Um, Prince of Peace, I, I, I get that he's going to come and he's going to bring about peace for me. He's going to make peace with God through the shedding of his blood and breaking of his body. But, but everlasting Father, that, 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 that intrigues me. And so I wrote down three things that I think from this text and from the name given to the Messiah, everlasting Father, as to what Isaiah wants us to know. So, number one, Isaiah wants us to know that the coming Messiah, Jesus, will be God. He wants you to know that. Now, let me explain why. Um, If you read Isaiah in his prophetic literature, one of the things he talks about the most is God's eternality and, and God's godness. Um, In Isaiah 57, he talks about how God is a God high and lifted up who inhabits eternity. He is holy and set apart. Um, And the word he uses for eternality and deity in his prophetic literature is the same word he uses here to refer to the Messiah. So what is he saying about this Jesus to come? He's saying he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That this baby coming 700 years from now, this this Messiah, this deliverer, this chosen one is actually also the author of eternity. Like he's God. He's not any less God. You need to know that he comes with the fullness of God being pleased to dwell with him if you can pull from Colossians 1. He wants you to know that Jesus is God. And and this is the message of Christmas. It's not just Jesus is Lord, it's Jesus is God. The angels say he's Christ the Lord. Everyone else says he's also Christ as God. He has to be both, right? Otherwise, there's no transformative hope at Christmas. There's no hope in the gospel for us. If Jesus is just a rabbi or a good teacher or a moral man or one who kind of like lays out a good way to live, where's the transformative hope for you and I? It's awful news if Jesus comes to make you nicer. Anyone tried that? Yeah, it's terrible, right? He offers to make you new, not nice. He wants to make you a brand new creation in the person and work of his son. That's what he wants to do. That's the good news of Christmas. He possesses all the attributes and essence of God. If he doesn't Christmas morning, you've got no hope. It's not a joyful morning. 
It's not celebratory. We have no reason to get excited and thankful, right? But he is God, and he uses the name Everlasting Father, Everlasting, to show you that he is God. Listen, um, I love when people are like, but Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, you just haven't read the Bible then, right? Because he claims to be it everywhere. In John 5, I mean, this is why the religious system was so angry at him, because he claimed to be equal with God. This is why in Matthew, he announces, hey, he's Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is why John chapter one, John starts out his gospel and says, the word was with God and the word was God. Word is Jesus Christ. This is why in John eight, Jesus himself comes into the scene and says, hey, before Abraham existed, I did. That's Jesus. Now, Jesus is saying that to speak to his eternality and his deity, But I I want just you to feel the weight of this for a minute from Isaiah's perspective, as Isaiah's rolling this out. Because yeah, Isaiah, I don't think, could see the glory of Jesus shown about him as he walked in his incarnation. He couldn't see that. But he, did I just hit puberty? I just hit puberty. So, but, I'm also a little sick. So, but, here's what he does. There's this interesting text in John that has always like just kind of boggled my mind in John 12 because it's that place where the people are going about and they're, they're, they're seeing the miracles of Jesus and some are not believing in Jesus and then other people are believing he is God because of the miracles, but they do so secretly because they don't want to be persecuted. But right in the middle of that, he throws in this text in verse, 12, verse 41 and he says this. And John's talking about Jesus. And he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. That's weird, right? Because I'm going, wait, Isaiah saw his glory. John's talking about Jesus, which means Isaiah saw Jesus' glory? But, but Isaiah is 700 years before the incarnate Son of God enters the scene. So, so what is he talking about? It seems like a, a strange verse, yet, yet when he says this, it says he saw Jesus in his glory. What is he talking about? Well, if you go to Isaiah 6, three chapters before this, it says here that he sees the glory of God, but everyone reading the Old Testament would have thought he meant God the Father. But John reveals to us that it was actually Jesus who he saw. Look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. It says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah is looking at the glory of not God the Father. He is but he's looking at the glory of Jesus. Like the robe that fills the temple is Jesus' robe. But like the king that's high as exalted, the, the seraphim, these, these perfect beings that are sinless are still covering their faces and yelling out, you're so set apart, you're so set apart, you're so holy. That's what these beings are doing to this Jesus who is sitting on a throne. I mean, get out of your heads, man. The stupid little nativity scenes. If you got one in your yard, God bless you. I don't mean to like offend you, but like they're just like, get that out of your head. The little wooden things, little trumpet, like little baby Jesus. Like, man, man, a real good picture of Jesus are these texts. 
And we don't really know exactly what he looked like when he was here. He was only here for 33 years. He's existed eternally. So let's go with like eternity minus 33 years, okay? That's what we want to look at. And here you've got Jesus in his glory. Timothy says he dwells in unapproachable light. You'd be incinerated if you got a glimpse of him right now in your humanity. You can't handle it, right? That's why Moses gets under the cleft rock. Man, just let me see a shade of your glory. And here, Isaiah reveals this Messiah, that this one to come, this everlasting father is absolutely God. And I saw his glory. And he has to be God to do anything for you at Christmas. This is why Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 15, he, speaking of Jesus, is the firstborn of all creation. He's pulling from exactly what Isaiah is prophesying. Isaiah not understanding in fullness what Paul understood, but he's still got a shadow of it. And he's saying here, this Jesus, he's not saying he was a part of the created order. A lot of people believe that that's what he's saying or that Jesus was the first thing God decided to create. That's not what he's saying. God and the Holy Spirit weren't standing around and going, you know it would be really sweet if there were three. I'm, I'm, I'm lonely. That's not what they're doing. That's not at all what's happening here. What's happening here is actually in this text, Paul's appealing to the deity of Jesus because the word firstborn is the word prototokos, which means that you have inherited every bit of what the Father has. He's talking about his equality with God. He's talking about his deity with God. Whereas Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was physically born or made, um, they miss that, no, that word is prototokos. That word is not to be made. That word is that you are and have received everything from the Father. So this speaks to his prominence over everything created. That's why, man, you and I, we can go outside and be like, start snowing. It ain't going to snow. You want to know why? You're not prototokos. Jesus can. That's why Jesus does all the things that he does in the Gospels. Because he is God. Now, why does this matter? Why does just this matter? Isaiah knows it matters because otherwise that deliverer can do nothing. If you don't know that this promised one is actually fully God and fully man, you've got no hope of transformation. You've got no hope of joy at Christmas. In order for Christmas to matter, in order for sins to be forgiven, in order for Jesus to have the full authority he's going to bring in his first advent and in his second advent, he better not be simply a good man. He better not simply be a good teacher. He better not simply be a rabbi. He better not simply be a prophet. He better be fully and finally God. Right? And so what you have is you have this like thing where the Old Testament points to that consistently. The New Testament points back at him repeatedly. And then you have the Gospels constantly appealing to his deity. Praise God, Jesus is God. And Isaiah knows that, says he's everlasting. He's eternal. He is God. Isaiah wants you to know this. Number two, Isaiah wants you to know that Jesus, the Messiah to come, is the only one who can show you the father heart of God. He wants you to know this. I don't think Isaiah has in his mind the role of Messiah, in, in his mind here, the role of Messiah in regards to the Godhead when he says Isaiah 9, 6. I don't think he has in his mind the Trinity and the role of that. Um, I think what he has in mind is the Messiah's character towards us, is what he will be like. Um, Sam Storms says this, 
Speaking of Isaiah 9.6, it's a descriptive analogy pointing to Christ's character. He is fatherly, father-like in all of his treatment of us. So Isaiah's revealing this Messiah to come is not only going to be God, he's not only going to be everlasting, but he's actually going to give you a window into the Father heart of God the Father. That's amazing. Like if you want to know what God the Father is like, you're going to have to look at this Redeemer. You're going to have to see him. You're going to have to know him. I mean, Isaiah couldn't fully see the glory of God that shone around Jesus when he dwelt among us. Man, but from Jesus' own lips, he says, I and the Father are one. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's Jesus. Colossians 1.15a says the, he's the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The writer of Hebrews is saying what Colossians is saying, is saying what Isaiah is saying. If you want to know how God behaves, if you want to know what God's heart is like, if you don't know what grieves his heart and his mind, you just look at Jesus. Jesus is the key. Jesus is the answer. He gives us hints in the conscience and creation, but if you go elsewhere, you get off. You want to know what God is like? Look at him. Look at Jesus, the exact imprint of his nature. And this is why I'm constantly shepherding you and pleading with you to get your face in the Gospels. Like, I mean, I love the whole Bible, but I, I love the Gospels because, man, I've told you, I've shared this before, when I kind of read through the whole Bible in college and I was asking God to reveal what he was really like, when I hit Matthew, and I went Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, I just, I couldn't get past Jesus. Because I'm like, you can't make him up. Like, like if, I'm a, if, I'm a, if I'm not inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, I'm not writing that. You realize that? I'm not saying man is dumb and God is awesome, all right? But because it's inspired by God through his Holy Spirit, he's repeatedly and emphatically appealing to his deity, and he says things that just blow your mind. And the ways that he acts towards sinful men and women blow your mind. That's why I'm like, man, I want you to read Jesus, but not just read about him, look at him. Like, don't just read facts, like when you're in John 8 and you see the woman caught in adultery and she's panicked because she's going to be publicly humiliated and pelted with rocks naked because she thinks her lover is let off scot-free and Jesus does what? Shows her mercy. You know what you're looking at? The Father heart of God. You want to know if God's merciful? Watch Jesus in that scene. Um, if you want to know God's grace and compassion, watch him. Zacchaeus, I mean, it would have outraged the whole city for Jesus to even talk to Zacchaeus. And yet, he shimmies up the sycamore tree. We just know the chant because we were all raised, right, in these things. He shimmies up the sycamore tree, the Lord he wanted to see. And Zacchaeus, you come down. I feel like it went a little different. Okay? Like, he climbs up. He doesn't want to be seen. Jesus is omniscient, wants to see Zacchaeus. He says, hey, bro, get down from the tree. Let's go to your house and chat for a while. I'm going to preach the gospel to you, show you that I'm God, show you that you need my forgiveness of sin. Zacchaeus repents and pays back four times everyone he rips off. What are you seeing, though, in Jesus? Grace. To someone out of all society didn't deserve grace, but what are you seeing? The gracious heart of God 
the Father. You're looking through Jesus to what God is like as you watch Jesus. So Isaiah is saying this and wants us to understand this. He wants you to realize that that's why he can call him everlasting father. And alongside that, the last thing, number three, he wants us to know that this coming Messiah Jesus will not just be a father, and you will not just know the father's heart, but know that he's a father with a father's heart forever, forever. He's everlasting father. He's eternally father. Now understand, the Jewish people here in this, um, this was a little bizarre. I mean, they, they rarely referred to God as Father. In fact, if you read the whole Old Testament, it's only 14 times. You get to Jesus in the New Testament, it says it over 60 times. Why? Because there's a shift. I want you to know that God is not just God distant, far off. He's Dad to those who would trust in him. He's Father. He leans in. He's tender. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's forgiving. He walks with you. It's what, it's what they want him want him to know. And, and what's amazing is what was frightening to the Jews, Isaiah shows a, a hint that the God of the Bible will be eager to present himself to you in this way, and he's going to do it through the sending of his son. This Messiah is going to help you see that aspect of God that was rarely talked about. That's why everlasting Father, when you hear that word, do you know that, that, that those words are invitation? Come to me. You are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Everlasting Father. This is so different. Stoics who believe God is unable to feel anything. Deists who believe that God just kind of wound up the world and kicked it into motion and he's abstract. You got Epicureans who believe God kind of lives in this indifferent serenity. You have Jesus, the Son of God, who will draw near, who is intimate, who is involved, who cares, who's concerned, like a father. Unlike any God you could worship. Because most things that are huge in strength struggle with meekness and kindness and gentleness. Yet Jesus is the whole package. And he will come in power and glory, but he will come in grace and kindness and in fatherly like characteristics. He will be mindful of you. That's why I love Jesus himself, this Messiah to come, gives the parable in Luke 15 of the prodigal son, and he he focuses on the father's response to the rebellious son. The son rebels, wanders from home, squanders all that he has, comes back. Everyone's thinking when he knocks on the door, dad's gonna be like, leave, or do your chores, or pay your penance. It's not what the father does. He goes, man, my son's returned home. Give him a robe, put a ring on his finger. Let's have a party. What are you seeing in the text? The father heart of God through the way that Jesus even teaches and speaks that this is what he is like. This coming Messiah will take note of you. You ever thought about that? Like at Christmas? It's so like, you know, kind of arm's length, like, and we, we talk about it and sing about it and think about it. But man, this is, Jesus is coming at Christmas. Like, he had you on his mind. Like, like listen, when Jesus decides to save you, there's nothing you can do. That's <laughs> the best news. That God saves and we don't. Because when he says, I'm going to save you, he saves you. You can run, you can rebel, and he just follows you and chases you down your coattails until he has you. That's what he does to every sinner. No one wants him. No one desires him. 
Yet it's the very thing we should desire and the very thing we do need the very thing that would satisfy, and God in his mercy, despite us and our spiritual blindness, comes after us and saves us because he's a good father who cares about those who will be his children. Now, here's what's so amazing, though, to me, because that, and here's what's so important to understand, that phrase in Isaiah 6, 9, 6, everlasting father, the Hebrew phrase everlasting father could be translated father of eternity. That's true, So what people will say is this statement from Isaiah is solely speaking to him being the eternal God who created everything, right? He's the creator of everything. That's that's the title. Now, um, because he's the father of time and eternity, that is true. Man, Jesus was present in Genesis 1, right? We created, let us make man, right? He always existed. He wasn't made by God. And then we know that Colossians 1 says that Jesus was a part of creating all that's made. Everything exists for him and through him and by him. So I'm not saying that's not true, but what's really huge to see in this text is that Father is the primary noun, not everlasting, Everlasting is describing the primary noun, Father. And the reason that's so important is because what Isaiah is saying then is this baby Jesus who will arrive Christmas morning will be a father forever. His fatherhood will not end. His role as protector, provider, care, the one who shepherds you by still waters, who restores your soul, Aging will not cease that. Death will not stop that. He will be a father to you in permanence. I mean, how many of us, I mean, with dad or just a parent figure? I mean, mean, we have no clue what that's like. You're going to love me with permanence? You're going to welcome me with permanence? I mean, some of us, man, it was like, you know, with dad, you know, just be careful what you say and how you say it so you keep the delicate peace. And then once you're done, just kind of leave him alone and he doesn't want to be bothered. God is nothing like that. And we project our experiences onto God the Father. And Isaiah says, don't do that with this one. Man, this God is going to be better than even the perfect earthly father, even the best earthly father. As good some of you guys had wonderful experiences with dad, only let that roll up to a better, more perfect father in heaven. And those of us who had abusive lives and dysfunctional homes and and separated families and just just challenged with dad, man, know that, man, don't paste onto God what he's like as him. Let you see him for all the glory that he can be and does be to you as his kid, that he welcomes you in, that he loves you, that he serves you, that he tenderly cares for you, and he does it with permanence. This is why I love Romans 8. There's images of Romans 8 in Isaiah 9, 6. What's going to separate you from the love of Christ? The love of a father. Nothing. Should famine or sword or persecution or trial, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. So when he saves you and he becomes your dad, he's always your dad. He doesn't leave you. He doesn't abandon you. Some of us know what that's like. Dad's abandoned me. Jesus doesn't. He's an everlasting father. His fatherhood is permanence. Wow. I mean, even those of us who feel like, man, I'm a pretty good dad, we don't father in permanence. Every day, we don't, we don't father like Jesus. So that's why we want to tell our kids when we fail and stumble, I hope that you're seeing the good father heart of God who's perfect in heaven. Forgive dad who's not. And I hope that you see him who is. It's opportunity. 
amazing that his robe will be forever. And just, just think about this, and then I'll be finished. Because I was just sitting on this Father forever piece. You look at God, everything you know about God in the Bible, like, like, like Old Testament God. I know Old Testament is different than New Testament. No, same God, right? But just pull all the text. You got God who made everything out of the sheer will of his desire and decree. Um, God who flooded the earth because he was sick with sin. Um, the God who literally stands outside of time. Um, the God who is able to do everything. The God who's creator of everything. The God who destroyed all his enemies. The God who Hebrews 10 says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Okay, so, so think about that God, right? Who is God, who is massive and big and has every right to judge sin and has every right to pour out his wrath on those who do not love him and do not treasure him as worthy of his worship. He has every right to do that. So we've got that God. Then, then this call, this everlasting father enters the scene. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, lives perfectly obedient to the will of the father for us in our place, dies the debt for us, is buried, rises from death, and ascends, gifts the Holy Spirit, we come to him in repentance and faith and say, okay, um, what should I call you? Boss? I'll be employee. Like, I get that. Like, God, you just tell Mike Reed what to do. Like, I get that. I'm minion, and you're creator. Like, that's not hard for me. But then he says, no, 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 call me dad. What? What do you mean call you dad? And through the person and work of this everlasting father who will be the Messiah Redeemer, he comes into the scene and he makes enemies God's friends. He makes orphans God's kids. He makes rebellious sinners righteous saints. And he says, you can have every bit of my affection in permanence. And I'm going to give you a window to the father heart of God through what I've done. This is why he is everlasting father. See, I don't get that. That's not what I'm expecting. I'm expecting when I repent and turn to faith in Christ for him to say, okay, just do, tell me what to do so I can just do what I'm told and be a good kid. And that's not what everlasting father does. He goes, I want you to be so blown away by my grace and mercy that you just love knowing that every bit of what I ask of you is because you know all the love that's driven behind that and all the security there is in trusting the Father's hand and heart. That I do not want to harm you, that I do not want to destroy you, and that all that I teach you is for your good, and I'm going to discipline those that I love, and I'm going to refine you with my refiner's fire because I love you and I care for you, and every bit of suffering is not aimless or mindless, and that the life with Jesus is not a good life, but it's the best life. That's the promise of Christmas as an everlasting father. That's what Christ brings to us Christmas morning. That he will shepherd you perfectly and lead you and tend you and do that without end. Charles Spurgeon said this. There is no unfathering Christ and there is no unchilding us. He is everlastingly a father to those who trust in him. Amazing. I mean, Spurgeon's just saying what Isaiah 9, 6 says is an everlasting father. You can't unfather him. When he becomes your dad, you can't even make him leave. You can't unfather him, and you can't unchild yourself. You'll never want to. The true Christian doesn't want anything else. 
You struggle with the residual effects of the fall, but your supreme heart and desire and hope is that, man, I want to be tied to dad. I want to follow dad. I want to look at his leading. I love this care that I'm getting that is otherworldly, that is unlike any human fatherly attention and affection and characteristic. I think of fact that one of the major reasons you find that people who grew up in church left is usually a combination of bad teaching and bad doctrine. And I don't mean to sound like I'm someone who, hey, all you need is big, heady stuff. I just mean what you learn impacts every bit of how you see anything. So, so what you're taught about God or taught about the gospel is inevitably and invariably going to affect how you walk in the gospel or walk in what you think you've received. And, and here's why I think a lot of people that grew up in the church usually just like, like just, just left is because they just, they just haven't heard the gospel, the true gospel. And the fundamental reason in separation is you grew up thinking it's contract, not covenant. And here's the deal. You can't have a covenant gospel if God is not a father. You can't. Otherwise, you're still stuck in good deeds. You're still stuck in merits. You're stuck, still stuck in trying to earn what's already been freely given to you. And so there is a massive difference. Everlasting Father reminds us that Christ's coming and in doing the work of the gospel of grace is done almost because of a great attribute of his, which is that he is Father. So here's what happens is if you do not have Father and you just have deity and all-powerful and God who's ferocious, which he is, then what you've got is contract alone and you coil in fear and say, you be boss, I'll be employee, let's write out a contract. Um, I hear the things you want to do for me. Uh, As far as I'm able, I'll perform for you. And if I do that, the promise is I'll get what you said you'd give to me. And that just is religion, dead cold religion. One's gospel, one's religion. Most of us don't realize it, and we tend to lean into contracts. So we sign the line, and your whole life becomes angry and bitter because God's not doing for you what you think he ought to because you think you're upholding your end of the deal. Well, God, look at how I'm living for you. How dare you? God's going, what? Instead, he's got covenant. He doesn't do contracts. I love that. And the difference is one word, relationship. Contract is not, covenant is. Covenant is I keep you when you wander. I keep you when you rebel. I continue to show you grace and mercy. And every bit of your obedience stems from the covenant I've made. You don't obey to try to get into the covenant with me. And when he seals you as dad and calls you as kid and loves you with affection, transformation begins to happen slowly over time. So we don't become sin managers. We become Christ worshipers. I say over and over again, and I want us to hear it all the time, we're not about just managing behavior at this church. We're not about you just, okay, I've got that sin issue, let me get that in line. Okay, now let me move on to this sin issue, let me get that in line. No, we're about pursuing a person and enjoying a God in all of his infinite glory and character, and as you behold his character and glory, you become transformed. So it's not staring at your sin, it's staring at Christ. It's not staring at how you failed, it's staring at what he's like. And as you push headlong into Christ, your sin begins to break. So instead of you focusing on managing sin, you're focusing on him and you're pushing headlong into his glory and his fatherhood and his mercy and his grace, which begins to untangle you from the sin that enslaves you. And you get at the root, not the branches. And he does that by being your dad. 
Some of you just need to enjoy being his kid. That's just what you need to hear today. That he's dad and you're his child. And there's nothing you can do to get kicked out of the house. And there's nothing you could do to get let in the house. He did it solely because he decided to. Because he loved you. Not because you're lovable, because he's very loving. Not because you're sinless, but because you're sinful and he was perfectly righteous. And he says, your life can count as mine. And the great exchange happens. And he gifts you his righteousness and he takes your sin. And he says, you can be mine. And he changes places with you on the cross of Christ. And he proves he did it in his resurrection and ascension. So for some of us, we just need to remember that. I'm telling you, if... If you're walking in contract, you've robbed yourself of the deep and rich intimacy that God designed you to experience. When he created Adam before the fall, before sin, he says man shouldn't be alone. That's not just speaking to marriage. It's speaking to relationship. Because God knows it's how we're designed for covenant, not contract. Um, Let's ask God for help to believe these things. Jesus, thank you that you're an everlasting father. And God, even these words and terms and theologies that we learn, we need the help of your spirit to walk in them and understand them and to grow us in them towards the head, which is Christ. God, we pray that some might be ministered to in precious ways, knowing that you do not forsake us, that you do not cast us aside based upon what we do or say or how we act. That God, your love, your salvation, your acceptance of us is solely based upon something you did by yourself. Thank you for appeasing yourself by a sacrifice of yourself for us. Um, And Lord, we pray that those that just need encouragement today to know that you are an everlasting Father who is near, who cares, who walks alongside, who tends to them will consistently and perfectly do that for the remainder of their days if they are yours. God, I pray for those that do not know you as Father, that do not see you as good or saving or loving, that they might see you as good, saving and loving, that God, even them being here, might be a testimony that you have been graciously calling them to yourself, that them even participating and witnessing what they see today might be a means by which you lead them to repentance and faith, and they might turn from sin and turn to you as God, Savior, King, Master, Lord. Father, thank you that Jesus is God. Thank you that you show us the Father heart of God, and thank you that you're a Father forever. We love you for that, and the infinite number of ways and reasons why we should, that we can't even say or know. In Jesus' name, amen.